Hello and welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Nikki Miles Wilden, Grey Eye's Associate Director, chats with actor, writer and co-founder of Grey Eye Theatre Company, Nabil Shaban, about Grey Eye turning 40 and what, if anything, has changed since then. This podcast contains some strong language. Hello and welcome to the Grey Eye Disability Arts Online podcast. I'm Nikki Miles Walden. I am Associate Director at Grey Eye Theatre Company. I am a white woman, uh, bleached white hair, though I'm saying that we can start to see my dark roots now due to lockdown number, whatever number we're on. Uh, long on the top, short on the sides. I've got black rimmed glasses, piercing in my left nostril. I'm wearing a black headset, makes me look a bit and feel a bit like Britney Spears. I'm wearing a grey jumper, which has got snowflakes on. Uh, and behind me is a white bookcase full of uh, loads of books about theatre that I haven't read. Um, and I am delighted to be joined today by the legend. And I, I, I said to him, I hold him up there. Hi is somebody that I've really looked up to and aspired to during my career. Uh, he's co-founder of Grey Eye Theatre Company. It's the wonderful Nabil Shaban. Hello, Nabil. Hello, wonderful Nikki. <laughs> How are you? All right. Right, so now I've got to, uh, I need to describe me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, first of all, I've got glasses on. Secondly, um, I my hair is rapidly disappearing and rapidly going grey to white. So it's pretty thin on top. Um, I'm wearing um, a black top with a, a red sort of waistcoat. Red and black are my two favourite colours. So I'm more likely to be wearing that. And behind me, like you, I've got a um, bookcase. In fact, I've got bookcases on, um, there's kind of an angle to each other, mm-hmm. and they're full of books, and too many of them I haven't read yet, and I've had them, you know, some of them for 30 years, and they're still screaming at me, read me, read me, mm-hmm. read me, <laughs> and they sometimes, um, well, I like to imagine that they push themselves out, and to get my attention and uh, I'm sure if I was in Harry Potter land I would be uh, attacked every (laughs) time I come into this room um, by all the books demanding to be read. Um, So you co-founder of Grey Eye Theatre Company and we were chatting weren't we before I pressed record about how uh, because I'm just a little bit older than Grey Eye, Grey Eye turns 40 this year of um, how Back in the late 70s, you and Richard Tomlinson were kind of cooking up this idea of Grey Eye. Yeah. And what 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 led you to, to setting it up? Uh, well, basically, it was the fact that um, I was a student at Harrywood College back in the um, 
early to mid 70s and uh, I was mad about theatre then I wanted to be an actor at that time um, I would say I wanted to be an actor since I was a kid at school and maybe even before that when I was um, a patient in a children's hospital in um, in Surrey mm. and um, so I always you know maintained an interest in being an actor although always you know from the point of view of school plays college plays um amateur and so on yeah and of course uh, i knew because we never saw anybody in a wheelchair on television or in the movies unless they were non-disabled actor star pretending yeah. to be a crip um so i you know i already suspected but if you're in a wheelchair you can forget it mm -hmm. and so and I knew that you know my school certainly would laugh at me if I told them but my ambition was to be an actor. Did you star in any school plays whilst you were there? Uh, I, I don't know about starring but um, I was often instrumental in getting a teacher to put on a play it was a special school for disabled kids mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't something that, you know, they would do automatically. The one thing they did do automatically was the nativity play. Okay. And uh, when I first arrived at that school, I was nine and it was the autumn. And when uh, the nativity play uh, was, was being set up for that year, um, I immediately asked to be in it at the age of nine and they'd already told me that uh, everything had been cast so I couldn't play uh, Joseph or any of the kings and um, I couldn't even play the baby Jesus in the crib. Not even the innkeeper either? Not even an innkeeper, I couldn't, <sighs> be, a, I couldn't be a cow, I couldn't be a, a sheep or anything or, or certainly not uh, any of the angels. But they, they saw how upset and disappointed I was. <laughs> and they said, well, what, what would you like to play? Perhaps we can create someone for you. Mm -hmm. So um, I said, I'll be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> and did they allow it? And they looked at me rather astonished. And then uh, I said, well, why wouldn't an astronaut go to visit baby Jesus? Mm. And uh, they thought, well, all right. So I got to make my astronaut suit, yeah, which was a you know a cardboard box for the helmet, and I cut something out and so on. So that was it. That was my first acting role ever. Brilliant an astronaut in the nativity play. Brilliant, and the fact that you you know you you threw a bit of a kind of a, a diva strop there, demanding a role in the play. I think yeah. was you know that was it. Could see your career in front of you. Well, I, I'm not sure I did see my career in front of me, but <laughs> I'm certainly um, encouraged by that. Good. And then the, uh, the other thing is that, um, of course, you know, it was a Christian Methodist uh, setup, and there was often uh, Sunday school, well, every Sunday afternoon we had Sunday school. Hmm. And as I got older, you know, the teenage kids would take it in turns to run the Sunday school on that day. And so when it came to my turn, 
I wasn't that keen on um, doing a conventional Sunday school um, session. Mm. So me were having a kind of theatrical bent. I decided that we should do a um, a dramatic reconstruction for uh, of one of the stories in the Bible, and uh, so I cast the kids. Yeah. I was probably in it as well. I wrote it, cast it, directed it, and then we performed it um, on that particular Sunday. Then there was one other time that I did it, um, and that was strangely enough when there was a kind of pandemic in the children's home. It wow. was a, the summer and there was a bug and the bug had ripped through probably a third or half of the people in the home. So I was one of those kids that um, got it, of course. Right. But it so happened that the headmaster also got it. And so there was, there was you know, like a third or half of the school, uh, children and staff, all in the hospital wing. And it so happened that that time, it was the Sunday that I was supposed to take the session. Mm. And I said to Mr. Hughes, who was the boss, I said, what am I going to do? He said, well, why don't you create something which involves everybody? Wow. So I searched the, the Bible in the Old Testament because the best stories in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And I found a story where there was um that climaxed with a battle. Nice, exciting. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I thought I'd be Cecil B. DeMille <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and create a, an epic film. Yeah. Um with and it was a beautiful sunny day and it was nice grounds around the hospital. Mm -hmm. for everyone to do. So I wrote a little script, allocated the parts, of course, and um, and then told people, you know, right, you'll die at the end and blah, blah, blah. And, um, of course, the rest of the staff who were in the big house who were um, unaffected, mm -hmm. um, they were watching this kind of strange activity going on down there at the hospital. And then the next thing they saw was like half of the people dropped down dead, <laughs> including Mr. Hughes. And uh, they were like obviously thinking, oh, my God, it's the bug. It's the contagious, bug is, yeah. Yeah. them off, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, one of my um, favourite memories of, um, you know, A, Mr. Hughes being so game. Yeah. To, to to go along with what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and play the part, and secondly, we uh, scared the shit out of the staff that <laughs> <laughs> hadn't got the virus, um, and uh, thinking that we were all we had all died. All just gone. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's so the kind that's, of audience response you want, isn't it? It is absolutely. So taking forth these skills then, so you knew that you'd, you'd got into drama and you'd got into writing and directing. When you were at Harewood College and you met Richard, um, tell us about how, I suppose, how that partnership happened. Okay, well, just before that, because unfortunately I didn't go to Harewood from the school. Okay. Uh, at that time, Harewood hadn't been created. Right. And um, all that was available to me 
was a sheltered workshop. Okay. Which I hated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I call it to this day the dump. Okay. Because I considered it a dumping ground. So I left Penhurst, the children's home, um, not having anywhere to go. And um, the thing was, I had to go somewhere that was a minimum of three years because there's a funny thing that local authorities, when you um, cease being a kid, they needed, before they could be responsible for you, you had to be in their catchment area for three years. Anything less than that, um, they no one would have to take responsibility for you. Yeah. And um, because of the school thought, well, what can we do with Nabil? You know, he, he's fairly bright, but uh, he hasn't got much of a future, really. I think probably the best thing would be to sticking him in some kind of workshop, a residential workshop, and he could stay there for the rest of his life. Now, I didn't want to do that, and I kept saying no. And I said, look, I want to do O-levels and A-levels, and I want to do art, because that was the other thing that I seemed pretty good at, Mm -hmm. um, artwork, painting and drawing. And, um, of course, there was no way I could talk about being an actor. That was totally um, out of bounds. Yeah, off the scale. Yeah, so, uh, and I didn't dare say that to anyone, except one man, Mm -hmm. one guy. And he was uh, working in the home as a carer in my final year in the home. A young bloke, a Scottish Glaswegian fella. He was probably, actually, I was 16, and he would have been maybe 18. Okay, so so not that much older. Exactly. So we, we were best mates, really, except that he was in authority and I was, you know, mm-hmm. his, his uh, junior. Um, and he saw how miserable I was mm. about going to the dump. And uh, he said, so what, what else would you rather do then? What do you want to do? What are your ambitions? I said, well, you know, I want to be a writer. I want to be... Um, artists I want to do you know painting and drawing and mm-hmm. and so on and he says yeah well you could do all that you know nothing to stop you being a writer and that and I said yeah but you know I haven't got the skills for that and anyway I um what can I write about apart from making up stories and um which other people can do as well as me so uh and then he says so what else do you want to do and I says well, don't laugh at me, but I want to be an actor. And he didn't mm-hmm. laugh. And he says, well, why can't you be an actor? I said, don't be silly. How can I be an actor? He said, why not? I said, I'm in a wheelchair. You know, no, you can't be an actor if you're in a wheelchair. Mm. When was the last time you saw someone in a wheelchair that was uh, real, a real disabled person? Mm. And uh, he said, well, there's Michael Flanders. I says, yes, there is Michael Flanders, but he's more of a singer. You know, he's a sort of comic. Yeah. Um, vaudeville kind of performer. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I want to do. I know I did try to sing once. Yeah. Uh, 
but Annie used to write, you know, funny songs, Mud, Mud, Glorious Mud. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I Don't Eat People, which was the cannibal song. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I hadn't a clue how he um, made it to be a performer. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he suggested that I write to Flanders. Yeah. What advice he had. So I did do that. The other thing he said, and I said, anyway, I've got to go to drama school, you know, to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And I said, no drama school would accept me as a student. He said, how do you know? I said, they wouldn't. He says, why not? I said, because they don't, they wouldn't want a person in a wheelchair as a student. He says, how do you know? Have you, have you asked them? I said, no. He says, well, why don't you write to them? Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, I will. So I wrote about 15, 16 letters. Mm-hmm. He got me a list of all the major drama schools in the country with their addresses. And I wrote to every one of them. Unsurprisingly, everyone wrote back and basically said, forget it. At least they, they wrote not... back. At least they wrote back. Oh, well, they, well, today they wouldn't have. No. No. In those days, people used to reply to letters. What response did you get off uh, off Michael Flounders then? Did you get a letter? Um, yeah, yeah, he wrote back. And um, he said, first of all, that he became a performer before he was stricken with, I think it was polio. Okay. And because he already had a track record as a performer... Mm-hmm. He actually he was able to get back into it, uh, albeit in a much reduced capacity. Right. Um, uh, but because he was always, uh, you know, a comedian, a singer, uh, wrote songs, mm-hmm. uh, comical songs, you know, and he was able to create with him and his uh, non-disabled friend, Donald Swan they were able to create a demand. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the key things that he said to me. He says, if you want to get into showbiz, you've got to create a demand mm-hmm. for what you have to offer. So basically, you need to do something that's unique. Yeah, the USP, unique selling point. Yeah. yeah. And he, and one of the things that, you know, he, he said, you, never, you won't be able to get into drama school. You can forget that at the way the way things are. Mm. Secondly, you're not going to be able to do Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, everyone is very conventional. And, uh, you know, they're unlikely to rethink any of the uh, mainstream plays uh, and, uh, you know, create and have uh, characters that don't look like the way they've always looked. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, you know, they're not going to let you play Hamlet in a wheelchair. Mm. And anyway, to play Hamlet, you've got to have first gone to drama school. And you can't get into drama school because they won't have you because you're disabled. So what you have to do is write your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Write things which um, only you can do. Mm-hmm. So create okay. uh, stories that are unique to your experience. Now, I'm like a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and I'm like thinking, but I haven't had an experience. Yeah. 
I know mm-hmm. nothing. How can I write anything that could be uh, different to anything else, to whatever's going on at the moment? So I was, um, I was still writing, but I was writing adaptations mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. And I kept sending them to him. And he kept saying, look, they're okay, but anyone can do that. Anyone can write a radio adaptation of this story or that story. Why would they want yours? You know, there's nothing unique in what you're doing. And he says, and stop writing these stupid biblical stories, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Et cetera, et cetera. And he kept hammering on me. Write about your life. Mm-hmm. That's what people are interested in. They're interested in your particular perception yeah. of the world. Your so. narrative, yeah. How did then that develop into meeting Richard? Right. The great thing about it was that after having got out of the Derwin three years later, Heriwood was now established. Mm-hmm. And uh, a year after leaving the Derwin, uh, I was able to um, apply apply and I had an interview with a panel and Richard because Richard was a, a lecturer at Heriwood mm-hmm. and he lectured in history and English and the course that I was uh, applying for actually didn't involve Richard at all because I was doing a business studies um, mm-hmm. certificate diploma yeah and um but he was st- nonetheless on the interview panel because his main uh concern apart from lecturing in his particular subjects was extracurricular activities mm-hmm. and it turned out that he had a little drama group but those students that were interested could go to in the evening mm-hmm. and um so when um, I went for the interview panel and there was maybe five members of staff, probably including the principal or vice principal, mm-hmm. Richard, he said, now I see from your um, um, application form that you like theatre, but you like acting and so on. And uh, I says, yeah, I do. And he says, so what, what What? have you done as an actor? I says, well, only school plays. And I then told him about what I'd done at the Derwin, at the mm. stump, and so on. And he says, oh, right, okay. And he says, well, I've, I've got a little group. Um, and if you were to um, be offered a place here, would you be at all interested in joining my group in the evenings? I says, of course I would. Try and stop me. Mm-hmm. And he laughed at that. And then, uh, so there we are. Had the interview. And then, you know, a few weeks later or whatever, I got an offer mm-hmm. to go there. Uh, yeah. So I went to Heriwood and I was there for two years. Now, so when I arrived, you know, I either I badgered, it was more likely me badgering Richard. Yeah. Him badgering me. So uh, I probably knocked on his office. Uh, he was actually, uh, he and his wife and daughter were live-ins. Okay, yeah. So, you know, he couldn't escape us. So in the evening, I probably knocked on his door. I says, hey, what about this uh, drama group you've got? I was there to get involved in the next show. 
from the outset. And that was called uh, Ready Salted Crips. Mm. And we, at Heriwood, um, I don't know if we invented that term, but it was brand new. It was hot off the press. Yeah. And we were calling ourselves Crips. Mm-hmm. And um, I suggested when when uh, Richard wanted to, to do um, another sketch show um, and wondered what we should call it, because he didn't like Never Mind You'll Soon Get Better or or call it Never Mind You'll Soon Get Better too, or anything <laughs> like that. I said, well, why don't we call it Ready Salted Crips? And uh, he went for it. That show proved to be very popular at Heriwood. Mm-hmm. And we took it on tour around um, the county of Warwickshire mm-hmm. to a, va- uh, uh, you know, quite a, a varied um, set of uh, venues, mm-hmm. schools, old folks' homes, um, colleges, et cetera, et cetera, even uh, um, a, th- a proper theatre, mm-hmm. which uh, get- lent itself to um, the local Amdrams and so on. Mm-hmm. And Richard and I were actually amazed at how people loved it. Brilliant. And most of the audiences were non-disabled. And we 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 realised that there was actually a thirst for something like what we were doing. People wanted to see disabled people mm-hmm. in a, an affirmative position, mm-hmm. in a positive, constructive situation. They were curious about our lives. They were curious about um, how we perceived their world. And often they were shocked. They were shocked by our sarcasm, our cynicism, our anger, mm-hmm. and so on. But at the same time, they um, they felt they deserved... They, they, uh, sh- there was a kind of masochistic attitude amongst a lot of the non-disabled audiences. And um, so this really excited me and Richard. And uh, by the time I I was only at Heriwood for two years, my um, course was coming to an end. And Richard actually was leaving Heriwood. And he was going off to the States. Before uh, we parted ways, Richard said to me, how do you fancy the idea of setting up a theatre company of disabled people? And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> sounds like a good idea. But uh, I don't know how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know. I was very pessimistic. Actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that was all because, you know, in the past, I'd suffered so many disappointments and so many rejections. You know, there were rejections which I haven't even gone into Mm. because I was always trying to be an actor. So then Richard's proposal of setting up this theatre company for disabled people, and it's it's really quite interesting hearing this journey, this story, because you think, like, this is over 40 years ago, isn't it? 45 years ago, really, your journey. And going... And and having, you know, working in the industry and also meeting the young people that I meet, th- th- it's still so similar. That feeling yeah, of if you're a disabled person, you can't possibly be an actor. Yeah. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. And, it's, and it's that that you actually go, like, from you and Richard having this idea to set it up and even your hesitancy then 
like I see that so replicated even yeah. in this next generation coming through yeah that fear yeah. of what is my place in the industry yeah I know because the, the industry hasn't changed much has it no you know, I don't and they keep you know they make a couple of steps forward and then they go back again yeah and you know every now and then we hear bloody stories that yet another Hollywood star who's not disabled you know is getting a plum part in some movie yeah. you know about a disabled character mm -hmm. gray eye still is in the business of training disabled people as actors yeah still in the business of training disabled people as writers yeah and directors and so on mm -hmm. because you know when i when when richard and i set up gray eye in 1980 you know i naively optimistically thought that after 10 years gray eye would cease to exist mm -hmm. that there wouldn't be a need for gray eye because hopefully by that time disabled people would be able to get into drama school they'd be able to get into other theater uh professions mm -hmm. You know, able to be in, you know, the uh, 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 the RSC or the National Theatre, yeah. you know, and, and it would all be taken for granted and that it is, you know, but that didn't happen. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, when you look at our, like, theatre, like the progression of theatre and also of kind of the disability journey, how it's so impacted by the government. Oh, why? Like, always like that progression that you feel you make and then there's a change in government and yeah. then you, you you push back again aren't you oh absolutely i mean you look at what tony blair did in terms of following the austerity um mm -hmm. program you know the first people he was cutting was disability arts mm -hmm. yeah you know so many disabled led organizations had their money taken off them. And he did it in such a sneaky way as well. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, he got, was it the London um, Disability Arts Forum mm -hmm. to host a debate about the fact that maybe now we don't need money going into disability, d disabled arts organisations mm -hmm. because that money could go into putting disabled people, you know, in the mainstream theatre and television mm. and all that. Right, yeah. That wasn't going to happen. And no. um, I, I, you know, was actually annoyed with LDAF for agreeing to have a seminar to basically debate our extinction, mm. you know, to give the government, you know, if they could get some disabled people to actually agree with the motion, but we actually don't need specialist funding anymore because the government is going to put that money into promoting disabled people in, you know, at the National Theatre and the Royal mm. Court and all that shit, which they weren't going to do anyway. But that was, you know... Blair, old, uh, old Tory, new Labour government yeah. Yeah. were looking to, um, you know, stop the funding. Yeah. And at the same time that was happening, to make sure that the disabled people would not have a voice, uh, uh, an objection to what Blair was doing, for some strange reason, all the TV companies decided 
to uh, knock on the head the disabled type programs. One in four disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the um, the from the edge, yeah, yeah. Know, all those subtly link on ITV. Yeah, they, were, they all disappeared, mm-hmm. and I knew. I was convinced. I knew the reason why all these disabled-led, produced disability programs mm-hmm. on mainstream television, albeit they're always like late at night or early on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning, there. yeah. Well, there's no one, no audience apart from disabled dedicated mm-hmm. uh, to watch it. Um, I was convinced that actually they were destroyed deliberately by the um, Blair's government because they wanted to stifle our voices because they knew we will be using those programs, those platforms, to protest mm-hmm. about the austerity programs, the persecution of disabled people, yeah. the removal of uh, arts funding, etc., etc. But, you know, that's the problem, is that, you know, eventually... If the government wants to kill us, they'll find a way of doing it. Yeah, sorry. And that's the reason I wrote First to Go, as a warning of what I saw was going to be our future if we didn't remain vigilant. Thinking about the future then, what, what do you think is, like, what advice would you give to a young disabled artist starting their career now? Well... I would actually give the same advice that I got from Michael Flanders, really. You know, write your stuff. Mm. Create a demand for yourself because the chances are drama schools um, are are still not taking on disabled people on the basis of their talent. Mm -hmm. You know, the the theatre profession, the TV profession, the whole entertainment industry, and that's the problem. We call it an end- entertainment industry, which immediately turns it into a capitalist mm-hmm. kind of um, notion, a setup. It's all about commerce. Yeah, money. And, 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 and the, the problem is that, you know, Thatcherism and then Blairism in Britain turned their back on art for art's sake, mm. right? You know, there was a time when the BFI, the British Film Institute, um, before Tony Blair fucked it up, Mm. um, was into making movies that were different, Mm. that were experimental, that were artistic, Mm -hmm. you know, that allowed people like Derek Jarman, Mm -hmm. you know, to make films and, you know, Mike Lee Mm -hmm. and, you know, loads of other people who felt that it was okay to, and Ken Loach, okay to sort of make issue-based movies yeah. or movies that were not necessarily, um, um, you know, straightforwardly narr- mm-hmm. narrative and so on. So really is that advice to those aspiring ah, right, artists yeah, was yeah, to write your own material. Yeah, And not only write your own material, but get your mates together and perform and it. Okay. And uh, and do it because the only way we're going to do it, we ha- the thing is we have to keep reinventing the wheelchair, because if we relax in any way, it'll be taken from us again. Yeah, yeah. We can't we can't afford to be complacent. 
Nope. We can't, you know, so we have to keep creating, you know, the Liz Cars and the Lisa Hammonds. Yep. And uh, the Nikki Wilden and the Matt Frasers and so on. Yep. Um, because if we don't keep recreating them, then the, the, the calls will die again. Yeah, we've got to keep the movement so, going. The, got to keep the movement going, and you've got to keep being angry Yeah, as well. Yeah. And you've so, got to um, go on. So write the stuff and, uh, and don't ever compromise to it. And don't give up. Don't give up. You know, what a, in a way, the great thing about YouTube, although, and, and the way the um, technologies mm-hmm. have made... Um, uh, the things more accessible ac- accessible and cheap, you know, cameras, you know, everyone, you know, you can make a movie with, with a smartphone yeah. and you've got good editing facility and so on. Mm-hmm. And although, yeah, the audience is on uh, YouTube. I mean, I've got a YouTube channel with about 200 videos on, mm-hmm. but I don't get many people looking at it. You will now YouTube, after the podcast. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know the the thing is, YouTube now has got is over oversubscribed. You know, there's like millions of videos on there. Mm-hmm. It's hard to choose, but nonetheless, you know, you, it's still possible for independent, disabled actors and filmmakers and writers to put their material together and make something and mm-hmm. get it out there. That didn't exist you know, 10, 20 years ago. No. So uh, we just have to take over whatever media platforms there are mm-hmm. and just push our material out. Yeah, keep our you voices know, being heard. So I suppose yeah. then, do you honestly think, I'm intrigued by this, you honestly think in 40 years' time we will be at a place where we won't need grey eye? I'd be surprised if we were in such a place. Mm-hmm. Sadly, but is that but what you... I hope you will prove me wrong? Nabil, it's been an absolute joy talking to you this afternoon. Uh, it's really, uh, really engaged me in our history even more so than what I was before. Um, and I just wish there was a feeling like it the movement has moved on, but you know, as you keep saying, we just have to keep pushing it. Yeah. And, and making sure our stories are out there. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, Nabil. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.